This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. The humanitarian crisis unfolding along the U.S.-Mexico border and the divisive political theater that too often accompanies it remains at the center of national attention. Earlier this week, a federal judge in California blocked the Biden administration's new rules for asylum seekers, while Biden's own Justice Department sued Texas Governor Greg Abbott for installing floating barriers along a thousand-foot stretch of the Rio Grande. What gets lost during such moments are the voices, stories, and dreams of the migrants themselves. Author, interpreter, and activist Alejandro Oliva knows this intimately from her years-long work with asylum seekers on both sides of the border. This is something she writes about in her new memoir, Rivermouth, a Chronicle of Language, Faith, and Migration. On this episode, Oliva speaks about these experiences with Commonweal's Claudia Avila Cosnahan. Plus, in anticipation of Commonweal's 100th anniversary, former Garvey Writing Fellow Nicole Ann Lobo offers a short reflection on the late Dominican priest Herbert McCabe. That's all coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Claudia. It's great to be seeing you. I'm here in New York City, but through the wonders of Zoom, I'm looking at you where you are in Los Angeles. Good to see you too, Dominic. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the conversation you've had with Alejandro Oliva? Alejandra's new memoir, Rivermouth, is about the process of migration for asylum seekers. And it's also a book about one's identity in relation to the border and the things one is forced to reckon with when asylum seekers are encountered as human beings with a story, hopes, and relationships of their own. Oliva is a translator for migrants, so she meets people at a moment of profound crisis. She is the person who translates their fears and violent experiences to the U.S. government. I was deeply moved by her witness, the way it changed her, and how her telling of her experience humanizes asylum seekers. I talked with her about trauma, anger, faith, guilt, and the repercussion of an adversarial U.S. immigration and asylum system. Okay, Claudia, thank you so much. And let's take a listen. Thank you. Alejandra Oliva, welcome to the Commonweal Podcast. Thank you so, so much for having me, Claudia. In your book, you begin at the border, specifically in Tijuana, Mexico in 2019, in the aftermath of the 2018 Central American migrant caravan. Could you describe what the caravan was, the political rhetoric behind it, and the work that you did there? Yeah, so the 2018 migrant caravan was essentially one of several migrant caravans that have happened of people coming up from Central America to the U.S.-Mexico border in large groups for protection, for solidarity, for being able to make negotiations and demands and talk to local and federal governments as a group as they're on this incredibly dangerous journey through landscapes and political places that are not always super, super welcoming. And so when this 2018 caravan got a ton of attention because it was right around the time of the midterms during Trump's presidency. And he really picked up on it as this sort of campaign platform almost where he was just really talking about it a lot, constantly speaking 
about these people who are coming as an invasion or as a flood of people who are just going to come in and smash on the southern border and break all our laws and invade our country and take all our jobs. And in reality, it was just a couple thousand people who were trying to make their way to a better life, who were trying to keep themselves and their families safe. And so there was a lot of really aggressive military posturing around that time of beating people back a couple of weeks before I arrived there in 2019. A couple of people had tried to cross the border on New Year's Eve, really frustrated with their weight, and they had been tear gassed and beat back very violently and very physically by U.S. border officials. And when I arrived there, it was as part of this sort of response caravan that was organized by New York City's New Sanctuary Coalition. And they were there. They had this sort of like 40 days and 40 nights thing. It was very biblically grounded or tracing the story of this caravan back to the story of a lot of religious sort of pilgrimages and movements. And the whole idea was to be there and do accompaniment work. And so I had previously worked with New Sanctuary Coalition as a volunteer in one of their pro se clinics where I was helping people actually fill out the paperwork to apply for asylum. And I kind of thought I'd be doing similar things in Tijuana. But then when I got there, it turned out that what we were doing was actually just accompaniment work, which is very, like, it is the opposite of goal-oriented. It is the opposite of, we're going to sit here and fill out this paperwork together and then we're going to be done with the paperwork. Instead, you are just spending time with people. You are filling needs that sort of crop up and feel really insurmountable if you are in this really pressurized tense situation of waiting to cross the border but are actually like relatively simple like I really need a cup of coffee and I have no idea where I'm going to get it I'm worried that the detention centers when I cross the border are going to be cold and I need a pair of leggings I need lunch but I don't know where I'm going to get it and so it's just spending time with people answering questions figuring out all these micro needs helping people make phone calls helping people like put their papers in order, playing with kids so that moms can repack their suitcases. Just very like open-ended kind of hanging out time spent with people who are in the middle of this very stressful situation. Very early on in your book, I was surprised by how emotionally affected I was. There was a moment when you began to first speak about a kind of secondhand trauma that you began to carry because of your experience there and because of hearing what what folks at the border had gone through. And if it's possible, it's almost like I got a third hand trauma by reading some of the things that you said. It wasn't like you had gone into a deep description of anything, but I just felt very affected by it. And so later on in the book, you do talk a little bit more about a struggle with a form of PTSD, this the secondhand trauma, but it's almost like you you were also describing it as like a thing that you carried in your own body, almost as if the things that you saw in them or heard them describe, you somehow experienced it in a different way, but in a very real way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So There's this concept that I think is becoming more and more talked about secondhand trauma, which is just this idea that the traumatizing event doesn't necessarily have to happen directly to you. It could be something that you witness or something that someone tells you about. And it's just like this realization 
that someone else's trauma is real and that these awful things exist in the world and you are in some ways bearing witness to it or in the case of a lot of folks that I met people really wanted to talk about the things that they had happened to them so I I just got done describing Tijuana as being this place where people are just like hanging out and concerned with very mundane things but there were also often people who were really hungry to talk about the things that had happened to them and be reassured that they were making the right choices or that they had left for good reasons. And so they'd pull up their shirts and show you their scars or they would explain to you all these things that had gone on either to make them leave their home countries or on their journey up. And it's one of those things that's like very, these were horrific stories and they're very hard to hear and very hard to like really understand that and the human being sitting across from you has been through this and has experienced these things and often has the evidence of it on their bodies. The secondhand trauma reaction often feels out of proportion to the thing that you have actually experienced or the harm that was done before you or in front of you. And so I think part of the thing of dealing with this sort of secondhand trauma is also just figuring out ways to hold it inside yourself without letting it take up your entire brain and figure out ways of talking about it and talking to other people who may have seen or experienced similar things and figuring out where to put it and letting it inform the work that you do, knowing that there are people that you are talking to who have gone through these things and have been in these situations that feel so harmful and emotionally impacting, but then also giving yourself the grace to have the emotional reactions that you're having and not trying to be hard on yourself for feeling these things in an intense way. As one reads your book, the reader might have an expectation that you'll go deep into a sharing of the asylum seekers' stories. But I got a sense that you were really careful about how much you wanted to say I get a sense that there's like this, this fear of feeding into a kind of voyeuristic desire to want to, to hear. But I, I, and so at the same time, I'm also hesitant to even ask within this conversation for this, the same fear. So I'm wondering if, if you're comfortable and if you could do it in a way that almost with the same care that you did in, in, in your book, is there a story of an asylum seeker that you met at the border that continues to affect you in a way that that still informs the work that you're doing and that you remember it quite often? Yeah, there's a couple that I met very briefly at the shelter who, right when I met them, they had just found out that it was extremely unusual for adult men and adult women to end up in the same detention centers on the U.S. side. And I don't think that they had ever, since they had gotten together, since they had become a unit, I don't know that they had ever spent a night apart. They kept saying, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. I don't know. And it wasn't like the fact of their separation when they got to the other side of the border, this thing that they had worked for so long and the fact that they would be separated for an unknown period of time was just almost like worse than the thing that had propelled them there. And they were just devastated. Both of them were crying. They were getting ready to cross the border that day. And so this was very much like a last minute surprise moment. And I think that 
was this time that it really became real for me that oftentimes the harms that we as a country, the United States, is inflicting on people can be worse, more emotionally difficult, more dehumanizing than so much of what they've been through because it's so dehumanizing. Like, of course, a husband and wife want to go through this process together. Of course, they want to spend time together, even as they're going, or especially as they're going through the challenges of immigration detention, of beginning their process of entering the United States. And that's the moment when we separate them, we deny them contact with each other. Often people will be moved around from detention centers and not know where their family is. I've worked with people kind of on the other side of this, like trying to figure out where their family members still are or whether they're still in detention. And I think meeting them and talking to them was, and seeing them go through the realization process that they were about to be split up was one of the moments that took something that I knew to be true in the abstract or that I had kind of thought about in this very impersonal way and made it really real and showed just exactly what the stakes were and what it looked like when these damages were inflicted on someone. As you describe what you did at the border, a lot of the scenarios, I imagined you as as really an in-between person. You, you use a lot of metaphors and one of them is like a kind of bridge or a kind of connector. But but something happens when you are called to be a translator in those moments. You talk a little bit about your own relationship with your partner whose who's Spanish is not as advanced as yours. And I only bring it up because there's this one line where you say that Spanish is a language of tenderness for you. And so when I read that, I thought about you speaking to asylum seekers in that language that is tenderness for you. It's one thing to talk to people and to learn their stories and to feel the pain and the suffering, but also to feel their hopes, to learn of their hopes and dreams. And then I wonder, is there another level of exploration when you do that work in the language that you describe as being a a language of tenderness for you? Do you think that changes how you feel about the folks that you talk to? I think it does. And I think there is a way in which at least I tend to be kind of awkward when talking to strangers, to people I don't know. Also, like the process of interviewing someone for asylum is, I don't want to say awkward, but like extremely uncomfortable in that you are sitting down with someone, you're immediately going, what's your name? What's your address? Cool. How do you spell that? great, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? It's for the form. And that's like a a very weird form of having a conversation with someone that like is not often replicated anywhere else. And so at least for me, having this language of tenderness and having this language of home and family be the language that I was conducting this work in felt at least like a shortcut to to sort of these feelings of warmth and tenderness towards another person and to be able to be like, this is someone that I can extend this mantle of family onto, even if it's just for this little conversation. And it becomes that much easier to sit and listen to them and not just take 
let the form take like the primacy or shape the conversation, but to actually take the time to be warm and human and have that chat and that that humanity that sometimes like sitting there and this very like goal-oriented conversation can become difficult or feels like a distraction from the work you're really there to do. I thought a lot about, as I read it, as a Spanish speaker myself, who also associates the language as the language of family and tenderness, I began to wonder whether going back to what we were talking about earlier about the secondhand kind of trauma that that you experienced, whether this experience of language and the dynamics of it also might contribute to the feelings of anger that you expressed in the book. Because there is a sense of you being very much angry about what you witnessed and what you continue to witness in people's lives and in this country. I'd like to invite you to to read a passage from your book, and I'll provide us some context before you do. On a Sunday, while you're serving at the border, you attended a prayer service on the beach. And this is a place where, for those who aren't familiar in in Southern California, uh, at the border, the wall extends into the Pacific Ocean. And you're filled with grief and anger from the recent experiences. And you're finding it difficult to enter into the kind of Eucharistic mystery of suffering turned into salvation in that prayer service. And you even say that the reminder that God is present in our physical reality seems cruel rather than hopeful. And so the pastor who's leading the the prayer service learned that you were a divinity student. And so he even offered you the microphone at the end of the service, but you like declined. And so he then proceeds to, to guide you and the rest of the folks there in a closing prayer. And that's where I'll invite you to share your words with us. All right. Father God, he intones, we ask you to meet us here at the border. You are Lord of all, God of everything. You are Lord of over, over all the people here. You are Lord over the governments and the nations of men. We forgive the governments for their actions, for everything that has occurred here, just as you forgive us sinners before this wall. My fingers tighten on the seal in front of me. My eyes snap open, the pastor's words blanketing out into a microphone hum whipped away by the ocean wind. I will not forgive governments, not the people, not even God. This is unforgivable. I owe nothing to a God that might let this happen. Earlier in the church service, a visiting rabbi had spoken about the Israelites fleeing Egypt. The Israelites had gotten men in the desert to feed them, had gotten an entire sea opening up before their feet, had gotten plagues on their behalf. Migrants in Tijuana got me and a couple hundred other well-intentioned gringos got Jose Andres' World Central Kitchen and got fucking Border Patrol officers and the desert. As we heard you read that passage of your book, it seems like you are experiencing a kind of like crisis yourself by being in the space. What have you learned about faith? You bring it up as like a personal experience that you're going through, but also the faith of the people who you're talking to. What have you learned? I think it's important to note that I, like most of this book is happening in the years immediately before, during, and after divinity school for me, which was also, as I think it is for a lot of people, a period when I was undergoing a enormous like reevaluation slash crisis of faith and like the faith that I'd been raised in, the faith that I was 
practicing or dancing around as an adult, all of these different things. And so I was, there's a lot of that did not make it into the book because it was not immediately touching on these subjects, although there's a lot of it that did too, some of which you just heard. And I think that through this experience, I met not only other volunteers who were there and doing this work out of a sense of faith and out of a sense of religious conviction that helping migrants, that being there and trying to ease the way was a morally and religiously correct thing to do, that it was part of a calling. But I also talked to a lot of people who spoke about their journeys and spoke about the safety that they were hoping for and spoke about other volunteers in very religious terms and in very faithful terms. The number of times that people thanked God for sending me to them or for sending other volunteers to them to help them. The number of times that I saw people thanking God for making it through their journeys, for keeping them safe through this incredibly treacherous and difficult passage. And it was really interesting and challenging and I don't quite know what the right word is, but something to see them just so wholeheartedly being like every part of this journey for me has been with God. Every part of my life, even the really difficult times, has been with God and like I trust God and I thank God for everything. And this kind of ties back into the trauma conversation of me being like, I'm just watching this happen. I'm just watching your life unfold or being told how your life has unfolded. And I am so angry at God. I can't even look sideways at the idea of it right now. And I felt weak. I don't know exactly what the right word is, but just there was such a discrepancy between the ways that I was struggling with my faith and the way that people were coming into these experiences or talking about their experiences as being informed and illustrated and illuminated by their faith. That was sometimes really hard for me as someone who was like going through my own deep reevaluation crisis of faith, whatever you want to call it. We'll have more of Claudia's conversation with Alejandra Oliva in a minute. I'm Ellen Koenig, Executive Director of Commonweal. With our centennial just around the corner in 2024, now is a great time to consider making a one-time donation or joining our associates program. Thank you very much for your support. It helps make everything we do at Commonweal, our publications, our programming, and this podcast possible. Another theme throughout the book is the idea of guilt or the feeling of guilt. Sometimes your own personal guilt as, some, as someone who, comparatively speaking, there's a, what you explore, the feeling of why is it that their lives went this way and my life is so much so different. You explore the feeling of guilt around your passport, for example, that you're a passport holder and the powers that that gives you. But then you also explore the guilt of this country. And you even talk about, you, you describe a myriad of ways in which the U.S. is responsible for migration. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamics of personal guilt and also communal guilt? Yeah. And I think even like the example of personal guilt that you gave is both something that I did feel like was personal and individual to me that I had a passport and other people didn't. But also that was an accident of birth and not actually anything that I had 
done or anything that like I had worked for or done anything to earn other than like being born on the right side of a border. And so it also feels in a lot of ways like systemic guilt and feelings of being the beneficiary of this huge accident that I had done nothing to deserve or cause while there were all these other people that were suffering because of this accident of birth that they didn't know about or cause or could have chosen. And at the same time, there is this question of like how the United States is treating migrants and me being part of the United States, as is previously established, is an accident of birth. But also, in a lot of ways, it feels like the actions of the government, especially as they, per- they pertain to immigration, are also completely out of my like reach or ability to alter, even as someone who is a voter, a citizen, someone who cares really strongly about this. There's nothing I can do. There's no finger snap that I can make. There's not even like really a voting campaign at this point that I can undertake or like a number of doors I can knock on to magically make the immigration system be more humane for the people working through it. So, so, so much of our immigration laws and policies are passed, are not like passed by Congress in like a I'm just a bill away and said they're federal memos and just random little like policies and bits of paper that get pushed around by people who are usually not even elected to office. They're just career bureaucrats. And that particular piece of machinery feels so overwhelming to encounter and to fight against. And at the same time, we are like as Americans, this is all done in our name and it's done in our in service to our imagined desires and our imagined needs and wants to like work or have neighborhoods that look a certain way, even though so many of us have not asked for that and have in fact asked for the opposite. There is still this idea of guilt because like maybe if you express those needs and those desires differently, then the system would it would be necessary to change the system. Maybe if we had organized our lives or our politics a different way, then this wouldn't have happened in such a sort of sedimentary accretion on top of sedimentary accretion way. And instead now we're faced with this like rock wall of policies and systems that are rooted in exclusion and rooted in indifference to human life that it very often feels that we are powerless to change in any real way, but also feels like it's at least in part our fault or our doing. And that, I think, is a sense of guilt that has felt most pervasive, I think, from everything that I've learned about the immigration system and how it works and how our laws are passed and how all of these systems grind forward year over year and administration over administration and how we've gotten to where we are right now. And that's the thing that I think feels even more individual than like the individual guilt of having a passport when someone else doesn't. So you do not claim to be a policy expert in the book, but you are an immigration activist. What do you believe is lacking from this administration 
And what dangers do you see as we approach a presidential election year? Yeah, so this administration has been such an utter heartbreaking disappointment because in as much as Biden came into office claiming to be different from Trump and to have humane solutions for the border and to offer different, just a different situation for people. In reality, the vast, vast majority of his policies have simply replicated the exact same things that Trump has done on the border. There is the CBP-1 app, which is basically just replicating La Lista that I talk about in the book. This process of really limiting the number of people who can cross the border, who can apply for it to seek asylum. You also have like recycled policies from the Trump administration under slightly different names. Biden has done nothing to protect DACA recipients who are still constantly under threat of having that status terminated, which is terrifying. And there's just all of these different policies that have just either not been a priority or have been rebooted and retooled specifically from the Trump administration. And I think that the danger as we approach a new presidential election is that, first of all, migrants continue to be scapegoats as we talk about things like the economy and jobs and all of these different things that are not actually about immigration and not actually about asylum. And I think that the other danger is that we keep creeping towards a more and more closed state, a more and more unwelcome and unfriendly state towards immigrants. And left-leaning administrations like the Biden administration have done nothing to walk back that rightward creep, that more that creep towards closed borders and towards exclusionism and towards isolationism. So every time they were talking during Trump's last re-election campaign, Stephen Miller was like, at last, I will be able to abolish birthright citizenship, which means that anyone who was born in the United States to immigrant parents would not be able to get citizenship for themselves by, again, accident of birth. And every single new, as we move towards this, uh, this next election, these possibilities that before were just like right-wing extremist pipe dreams are becoming more and more certain and more and more true because we're doing nothing to combat them or to push back against them or to clear the slate at least towards a little bit of a more balanced system. And we have crept rightward so, so far, even in the last 20 years. One of the things I learned while researching this book was that George Bush to this day favors amnesty. George Bush favors amnesty, which basically means if you're in this country, if you've lived here for a certain number of years and not been accused of any crimes, then you can just, you get citizenship or you get a path to citizenship and a green card. And that is an extremely Republican president from just 20 years ago. And we have moved so far right since then that I think that even a Democrat who would suggest that would get laughed out of office. And that's incredibly disheartening. What hope do you have? What are you hopeful about? Yeah, I think the work of individual people and more and more individual people sort of gathering up and saying, you know what? No, like we can't keep treating people like this. We can't keep treating our neighbors and the countries that we've exploited for gain in this way. It is unsustainable in so many different ways. 
And I think that as I've been working with people, I don't talk about this as much in the book, but for a while, my job was to talk to people who had finished their immigration processes and gotten green cards, gotten work permits, gotten the visas that they needed to start their life in a place of stability in the United States. And the number of people who, in those conversations, on the other side, would talk to me about the activism that they planned on doing, the community outreach that they planned on doing, and talking to their neighbors and loved ones about their own experiences and what needed to be different in the system, and their own feeling of, okay, I got mine, I'm here, I'm stable, how can I spread this to other people, is just an incredibly generous act of getting to the finish line, then turning around and being like, okay, who's next? Who's next? Let's keep them coming. And just being really open and generous and talking about difficult times and bad situations and dehumanizing situations that that don't always reflect well on, I don't want to say don't always reflect well on them, but like it is humiliating to have to talk about a time when you were dehumanized. It is something that can be deeply shameful. And so many people that I've talked to were willing to be so open and so honest about all of these things that had happened to them and these things that they had witnessed to prevent someone else having to go through the same thing. And I think that more than anything is what gives me hope that this is not a system that is sustainable because like human spirit and resilience cry out against it. And that's my hope for the future, I think. Thank you so much, Alejandra, for spending this time with us. And thank you for your book. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Claudia. Alejandra Oliva's new book is Rivermouth, a chronicle of language, faith, and migration. And it's available from Astra Press. Up next, Nicole Ann Lobo joins us for another installment of our centennial series, short reflections by current Commonweal writers on writers from the magazine's first 100 years. Hi, I'm Nicole Ann Lobo, and I was the 2019 John Garvey Writing Fellow at Commonweal. Back when I was a fellow, One of my favorite memories was mining nearly a century of Commonweal's digitized archive to discover hidden treasures. I helped put together a collection on labor and the Catholic Church, which drew from these archives, and it really demonstrates Commonweal's long-durée commitment to grappling with the intersection of these subjects, featuring authors ranging from Dorothy Day and John Court to today's Matt Mazuski and Dean Detloff. My favorite of the articles, however, was a forgotten 1968 essay by Herbert McCabe titled Priesthood and Revolution. McCabe hardly needs an introduction, but the Irish-Dominican priest is one of the chief philosophers of liberation theology. And in the essay, McCabe grapples with relationships of several kinds between lay people and priests, the church and the world, Christianity and Marxism, and simply humans to one another. McCabe is thinking deeply about this relationality and how the way in which individuals relate to one another, view each other within the grander scheme of the world, shapes everything from our culture to our economic and political system. When this relationality is tainted with domination and control, McCabe thinks it can become a sickness, one only remedied by total renewal which he believed the church ought to take up as a chief concern. 
And he quotes Marx on how the dissolution of class would lead to universal understanding among humans, the truest sense of freedom attainable only when the relationship of domination, which alienates man, is destroyed. And what comes of this revolutionary change? Well, in McCabe's words, quote, its ultimate aim is not describable in the available language, as language itself is constituted of dominant institutions. Rather, McCabe writes, the revolutionary is, quote, concerned with the transcendent, with what cannot be accommodated within the categories of our time, of our world. The church takes on the mission of revolution within the revolution, making Christianity, he writes, Marxism carried a great deal further. Now, this line may seem provocative to our ears today, and McCabe knew it was. He spells words unpacking the deep suspicion that Christians and Marxists have historically had to one another, finding dishonesty in both, but pointing, true to his vocation, mainly to Christianity's betrayal of its own revolutionary purpose. For Christians, he finds, have the duty to think not around or against political change, but with and through it, to metaphysical and spiritual depths which embody total revolution. And priests, he argues, have an obligation to embody the spirit, their authority vested not externally, but within the movement and community itself. As a result, the entire credibility of the church, McCabe suggests, rests on whether it is actually an effective force in revolutionizing the world, despite how difficult such a task might sound. Now, McCabe's profound spirituality, coupled with deep criticism of a prevailing social order, bound together not by cynicism, but, in the truest sense, optimism in the form of love, is what makes me so admire Herbert McCabe. But the spirit of devoted inquiry is also what I believe characterizes Commonweal. As the voice of the laity, Commonweal has a long tradition of challenging clericalism within the institution and culture of the church, while also inviting and sparking broader conversations on the role of Catholicism within society treating debates that often descend into messiness and mischaracterization with nuance, care, and generosity. And it's for this that I'm so grateful Commonweal exists. And as we approach the magazine centenary, I hope for a hundred years more. You can find work from Herbert McCabe, as well as from Nicole Ann Lobo, on our website. And we'll be doing more of these short reflections on writers from Commonweal's first 100 years in the months to come, as we approach our centennial in 2024. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>